a reading from the book of Joshua. On the seventh day, they rose early at dawn and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers we sent. As for you, keep away from the things devoted to destruction, so as not to covet and take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel an object for destruction, bringing trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, they raised a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people charged straight ahead into the city and captured it. Then they devoted to destruction by the edge of the sword all in the city, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys. They burned down the city and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Joshua then pronounced this oath, saying, Cursed before the Lord be anyone who tries to build this city, this Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest, he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. As I did last week, so also today, I need to give a disclaimer to you that today's sermon is about violence and some of its content, while in no way graphic, will be difficult. If you arrived today seeking comfort rather than a challenge, I may let you down. I should also tell you that today's sermon will be slightly different than it was advertised. You may have seen announcements that today's sermon would be about violence, slavery, and hell. When I got to writing, I realized that that was way too much to try to do in 15 minutes. I will stick to some broader reflections on violence in the Bible today and plan to address the issues of slavery and hell in future weeks, probably after the first of the year. Next week, we'll shift back to good news for a little while. <laughs> Let us pray. Gracious God, we are thankful for your word as it comes with its challenges, its comforts, its grace and peace and power. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O oh Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the most important issues for responsible Christians to grapple with is the violence found in our holy scriptures. 
There's no need for an attention-grabbing opening illustration today. It should get our attention quite enough to remember quotes from the scriptures that we read this morning. The Israelites going to battle, instructed apparently by God to destroy everything, kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. These passages are in the Old Testament as well as the New And Christians should likewise wonder about the act in the New Testament many refer to as the moment of salvation for all humankind when Jesus is hung on a cross and put to death in an act of violence. Again, it is seemingly sanctioned by God. How do we make sense of this? So let's get right into it. We will talk specifically today of two passages, one a battle in the Old Testament book of Joshua, the other a story of the crucifixion of Jesus. First, Joshua. Some of you may know that this part of the Bible is commonly referred to as the conquest of the Holy Land, implying that the Hebrews came into the land, conquered and subjugated these other people and took over their kingdoms. I begin from the assumption that it is more or less impossible to feel good about these stories if you take them literally. But even going back to the ancient theologians, we see that Orthodox Christians in many times did not take these stories literally. We are not required to do so. Ancient interpreters like St. Augustine and Origen struggled with these texts themselves and they wrote at length about their symbolic origins and purposes. Furthermore, had this widespread genocide of an entire region taken place in human history, there probably would have been a record of it outside of the Bible. But to the best of my knowledge, there is not. So something other than historical reportage is going on here. What is it? If you read these stories more closely, you see that they are about more than conquest. It's actually worse than that. These texts are not about conquest. They're about complete annihilation. Men and women, old and young, are all put to death. Everything in the city is burned. There is nothing left. The Israelites are even instructed not to take anything for themselves as spoils of war, and there are stories where they are punished when they do so. Something important is going on through this idea of not only violence, not only conquest, but absolute destruction. What is it? Understanding requires looking at what happens before and after these stories in Scripture. We actually talked about about it this past uh, summer in the Understanding the Bible series. So I'm going to take you back to that uh, very quickly. And if you want to hear more about this background, go back to our summer series posted on the website and in our podcast. Listen to the Sermon on Exodus and the Sermon on the Prophets and Kings. This is what you will hear. The Bible is a story of a covenant, a covenant between God and humanity, a covenant that is repeatedly created, broken, and restored. 
The people always have a choice to make, whether they will choose life and follow God's covenant, or whether they will choose the death-dealing, soul-stealing ways of the broken and cruel world. In Exodus, this choice is made clear to them in the choice between life with God or with the Pharaoh in Egypt. And the choice is harder than it appears. The people have a difficult time choosing God's ways and trusting in the covenant. When we jump to the stories of the prophets and the kings, we see a similar storyline. For a long time, the people of Israel don't have any kings. They are a people without that kind of human leadership. But eventually, they look around at the peoples who live around them, and they say, everyone else has a king. God, give us a king, too. And God warns them, you don't want a king. Because if you have a king, he will take your sons for his army and your daughters for his harem and will tax you to build palaces. And the story goes on and on about all the reasons you don't want a king. But the choice, again, is not easy. The people still insist, give us a king. And this is another example of choosing the ways of the world over the covenant with God. Now, it is in between these parts of the story that we find what we read this morning, the book of Joshua, and these most violent stories in the Bible. Stories, as I said, not of conquest, but of annihilation. And in the broader context that I have just noticed, we can start to see what these stories might mean. As biblical scholar Tom Dozman describes it, the present danger in these stories for Joshua's generation is any form of assimilation to the dominant culture. The present danger for Joshua's generation is any form of assimilation to the dominant culture. So in these stories, the cities that represent that culture, that dominant culture, they are entirely destroyed. Nothing is left. The the slate is wiped clean. No spoils of war. Nothing representing the former kingdom is to remain. In these stories of the Bible, the choice is clear. You may choose death under the kings of the world, or you may follow God and live free. As another scholar, Jerome Crouch, states the same situation, the accounts of battle in the Old Testament provided a dramatic narrative portrait of what it meant to be devoted exclusively to the Lord. And he adds, they are not a mandate to kill people. Listen to that again. In these stories of the Bible, the accounts of battle are provided as a dramatic narrative portrait of what it meant to be devoted exclusively to the Lord, not as a mandate to kill people. So these stories of war are not historical reports. They are variations on a theme that was already present before and after the book of Joshua in the Bible. These stories would have made their point. Do not choose the ways of the other kings. Choose the way of the Lord. There is no compromise. Now I admit there are plenty of things not to like 
about this violent way of making the point. I don't particularly like these stories, but I do think the context helps to understand why they are there and what they were intended to mean. Let me offer an example, this one historical, that may help these passages make sense. The most familiar story from Joshua is the one we read this morning, the Battle of Jericho. It is just as violent as all of the other stories from Joshua we may not like, and still we sing the song and teach it to our children. Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho, and the walls come tumbling down. This is a violent and awful story. And this, of course, is also a black spiritual. And many of you know that most of these songs drew upon subversive stories in the Bible and applied them to the cruel realities of slavery with the hope of liberation. One can imagine that an enslaved person in colonial America would have, would have absolutely zero desire to assimilate to or participate in the cruel culture of their white slave masters. You can hardly fault them for finding hope in a story where the walls come a-tumbling down, the slate is wiped clean, and God's people are able to escape and to start fresh, created under a new covenant with God. You may take issue with the violent stories in the Bible themselves. As I said, I don't love them. But this example helps me consider a context in which people would witness the horrors of the dominant culture and would wish to have nothing to do with it. This, I believe, is something like what we are seeing in Joshua and the other violent texts of the Old Testament. That's a lot. Take a deep breath. Let it out. Let's put aside the Old Testament for a moment and turn to the new. A violent story is very much at the center of our faith in Jesus Christ, the story of the crucifixion on the cross. And the question that immediately arises is, why did it have to happen this way? Could God not come up with some way to save us other than the violent death of God's own son? Could this be a God of peace and love? What is going on? There are many different ways of understanding the meaning of the cross. Over two millennia, volumes have been written about this subject. For today, I will talk about one explanation, and it continues the theme we were talking about in the Old Testament, choosing God's ways over the ways of the world. The Old Testament and the New Testament are not two different stories. They are one and the same. Specific to the cross, the story of the crucifixion, we are talking about choosing the way of Jesus over the way of the Roman Empire and its culture of oppression and death. Crucifixion was an ancient instrument of torture. It was invented by the Romans. Death by crucifixion was not unique to Jesus. It was not unique to the two bandits who died at his left and to his right. 
It was frequently used as a form of capital punishment. It was intended to be public and to be frightening. And it was reserved for crimes of insurrection against the empire. When we hear that Jesus carries his cross out to Golgotha, he is going outside the city gates to the place where crucifixions took place, along the road into the city. There the crucifixions would be a warning to anyone heading into town. This is what happens to people who dare to threaten Rome. The way of the Roman Empire was to oppress and intimidate, to do this to conquered people so that they would be loyal subjects, even as their wealth and resources were taken from them and filtered into the hands of the powerful Roman authorities. Local kings and priests in each province were given a small piece of the action in order to make them complicit in perpetuating the system that oppressed their own people. It was horrible. Jesus told a different story. Jesus loved the people at the margins of society. He preached justice for the poor, release for the captives. And when he was asked by Pilate if he was king of the Jews, his only reply was, you say so, for Jesus had no interest in being a king in this world. In Jesus' life, he preached an alternative to the vision offered by Rome, and he was put to death for it. Some church traditions over the years have made it sound like the crucifixion was God's idea. I think it's much more accurate to say that crucifixion is the risk you may run when you live in an empire of violence and you dare to challenge its ways. One of the greatest blights on the history of Christianity are the many times Christian people have acted in violence, claiming the will of God as their mandate. It happened as early as the fourth century under the Emperor Constantine, continued throughout the Crusades, and it was a justification for the colonial genocide of Native Americans and the aggression of Nazism. Christians are not alone in making God an excuse for violence, but we have certainly done our share. So any time someone acts in violence and claims God's favor, we need to sit up and take notice. I am not here making a sweeping generalization that all people who showed up at the Capitol on January the 6th were violent. But clearly there were violent people among them, and it should be noted that when some of the most violent ones entered the Senate chamber, they immediately stopped to invoke the name of Jesus in prayer. They did so for several minutes. I raise this thorny issue because I can see how those protesters believed they were standing up against the ways of an evil empire. If you don't read the scriptures carefully, the narrative allows for that. Our government, too, has its own history of violence and its history of claiming the name of God for the violence we perpetrate. 
And given the history of Christianity, given the history of Christianity, we need to be very suspicious anytime we see the name of Jesus invoked when people take up arms. Violence in the name of God is present in our world today. It is present in many places. And we have a responsibility to tell the story of Christ in another way, one that objects to a violent world and preaches a prince of peace. That's a lot more. Take a deep breath. Let it out. This is hard stuff. These are important texts for us to read and important to study. They are difficult to deal with, and sometimes I wish that they were not there at all. But the fact that they are present, that the Bible it, it tells these violent stories, it means that the Bible does not ignore the fact of violence in the real world. And that says to me that this is not a naive book it is a relevant one. Christians are not intended to be a people who pretend that violence does not exist in the world. We are meant to acknowledge the reality of violence in the world and to confront it head on and insist on a better way. I hope and pray that this sermon and the series that goes with it have been helpful to you. I invite you to continue to join us in Bible studies between our worship services to follow up. I invite any conversations you may wish to have with me as time goes on. We need to approach these texts humbly, not stating that we know what God wants, but praying that we are in alignment with God's hopes for the world. May God bless our worship and find us to have been faithful to God's holy word. Amen.